greater glory of world and for your development. Amen. Right. Now, please let us just bow our heads for a word of prayer. Loving Father, give us understanding as we go through these scriptures. Bless our hearts with wisdom and may we learn the sense of what we are talking about. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what were we talking about? Our study from this morning. Issues about the righteousness of God. Issues about the righteousness of God. And let's look at these five points briefly again for a brief orientation. Anyone on this earth that's supposed to know the essence of the real gospel, anyone that has an understanding of the fine points of the real gospel must understand these five points here. Because these five points are the essence of what the Bible is talking about. Let's look at it again. Point number one. We are saved by the righteousness of God. Do you get that clear, my dear brethren? If somebody says we are saved by grace, what is grace supposed to make you become in contact with? The righteousness of God. So if you are saved by the grace of God, the grace of God is God's attitude. But God's attitude towards us makes us come in contact with his righteousness. And we are saved by the word, The righteousness of God. The next question is, what is this righteousness of God? The answer, the righteousness of God is God himself. Amen, brethren? Which comes to our very third point. Jesus is the righteousness of God by virtue of his divinity. So since Jesus is God, his divinity, Jesus is the righteousness of God. So Jesus is not the righteousness of God by virtue of his humanity, but by virtue of his what? Divinity. It's important to learn. Point number four. Jesus is the Savior. Why? Because God, who is Savior, is the righteousness of God in the man Jesus. So you think about the man Jesus, you think about the righteousness of God in him, and that righteousness of God is God our Savior. That righteousness of God in Jesus is God who is Savior. Therefore, Jesus is what? Savior. Do you get that clear, my dear brethren? Very important. Yes, brother. John Calvin's solution to rejecting these points. You'll be surprised. Point number five. Justification makes us really righteous by giving the righteousness of God within us. Do you get that clear? If you have that, you have the gospel in a nutshell. Justification, son of God, incarnation, you name it. Gospel, it's all there in a nutshell. This is very important. So the real philosophy behind the gospel of salvation are these five points right here on the board. If you get them wrong, you get everything wrong. Do you understand, my dear brethren? And this morning, we quoted for you to show you John Calvin, 
finding something wrong with these points. So we ask ourselves the question, what was his solution? We get to his solution one time. Listening? Paying attention, right? Okay. Point one. Institutes of the Christian Religion, volume 2, page 44. He says this. Hence I infer first. Hence I infer first that Christ was made righteousness when he assumed the form of a servant. That Christ was made righteousness when he assumed the form of a servant. So what does that mean before? You got it. I love you. You got it. He continues. Secondly, that he justified us by his obedience to the Father. Do you understand that? Secondly, that he justified us by his obedience to the Father. And accordingly, that he does not perform this, that he does not perform this, the justification, for us in respect of his divine nature, but according to the nature of the dispensation laid upon him. That is trick writing. So you're saying that Christ didn't perform this justification for us based upon his divine nature, but according to the nature of the dispensation laid upon him. You shouldn't even use the word nature. Just say the time of the dispensation laid upon him. All that is trick writing and deception. Amen, brethren? So what Christ does for us is not according to his divine nature. This is saying that it's not God is the Savior, but who is the Savior? Man. That the man of Jesus is the Savior. Not the God is the Savior. That's what this is saying. But let's go on. He continues. For though God alone, for though God alone is the fountain of righteousness, and the only way in which we are righteous is by participation with him, yet as by our unhappy revolt, as by our unhappy revolt, we are alienated from his righteousness, it is necessary to descend to this lower remedy, to descend to this lower remedy that Christ may justly that Christ may justify us by the power of his death and resurrection. Do you know what blasphemous thing has been said here? You are saying that because the righteousness of God is so high, and the righteousness of God, God is the fountain of righteousness, because man revolted from God and became alienated from God's righteousness, you are saying God had to get a lower remedy to deal with sin. And the lower remedy that Christ may justify us by the power of his death and resurrection. In other words, God could no longer justify us by his righteousness. We revolted from that. We are alienated from that. So he needed something lower to justify us, and that is the death and resurrection of Christ. But why lower? Because it will take a body to die and to what? To resurrect. So it is like saying, well, the man will save us because we reject the righteousness of God. Do you get a clear idea, brethren? This is what he's teaching. Yes, my dear. So, um, the two plates, right? 
It, it will boil down to something like that. But to put it in a more, uh, what you call, simpler way, it's like saying because the righteousness of God saves us, and that is what man revolted against, God signed a lower level to save us. The lower level was no longer the righteousness of God. We were alienated from that. It was to justify us. It had to be the death and resurrection of Christ. So it comes like the death and resurrection of Christ is something lower than the righteousness of God. And this is what saves us. This is what he said. Do you see these crazy teachings? Are you listening to me? Yes. Good. Well, he means from the beginning. When man sinned. Yes. There was no Bible text here. There's no Bible text here. So I quote it. But he doesn't finish. Two more points. Quickly. He held this following position. He held this following position. That we are justified through the expiation made by Christ. Expiation means death under the wrath of God. A peace in God's wrath. So he says we are justified through the expiation made by Christ. That the righteousness of God is used for the righteousness which is approved by God. So if you ask, then what is the righteousness of God? He says righteousness approved by God. Well, what is it? The death and the resurrection of Christ. He goes on, last point. That we are justified by Christ in respect. Listen to me carefully now. That we are justified by Christ in respect he was made an expiatory victim for us. This he could not be in his divine nature. You didn't catch that one. I'll repeat it. That he was justified by Christ. That we are justified by Christ. In respect he was made an expiatory victim for us. This he could not be in his divine nature. In other words, if Christ were to justify us, he had to be made an expiatory victim, a victim under the wrath of God for us. And since that is the case, his divine nature can't go through that debt. So then this he, did, he could not do with his divine nature. He couldn't do that dying with his divine nature because the divine nature couldn't die. This is telling me I am saved totally by the death of a man. Did you see that? But remember, right, that's right, that's human sacrifice. Literally put, watch me. Remember, we are what? But we have him telling us here, we are saved by a man dying. And he didn't even put the death properly, you know. He has it as an expiatory victim. So you are to get the idea that the gracious, loving God makes Christ a, a victim of his wrath. But since it's the body that alone that could die, it wasn't Christ's divinity that could have saved us. What crazy teaching is this? That's his solution. Now I ask you, would you hold something like that as a solution in place of these teachings on the body? Yeah? Would you hold that as a solution in place of the teachings on the body? Yeah? No. But because Calvin had those teachings, it couldn't help anybody get salvation. So he invented choiceless predestination commonly called particular predestination 
where you are saved based upon the decree that God made either just after Adam's sin or before Adam's sin. Where some are decreed to be saved and some are decreed to be lost. So then this teaching here is not the effect for our salvation anymore. It is the decrees of God. Did you get that clear, my dear brethren? And somebody will have a teaching like that because they, de they deny the plain, simple principles of the gospel. That's right. Yes. Yes. So in summarizing all that he said, he tells us Christ was made righteousness only when he assumed the form of a servant. That's what he tells us. B, Jesus justified us by his obedience to the Father. C, Christ does not perform justification for us because of his divine nature, but because of the type of dispensation laid upon him. And D, instead of justifying us by participation in him, God, who is the fountain of righteousness, because man revolted and is thus alienated from God's righteousness, God descended to a lower remedy to justify man by Christ through the power of his death and resurrection. E, the righteousness of God is the righteousness that God approves of. And F, since Christ justified us by his expiatory debt, this could not be done in its divine nature because the divine nature could not die. This is the foolish teachings that are attempting to replace this. But I read it straight for you from his book that you will get, the in, that you will recognize the institutes of the Christian religion, how erroneous it is. Now this teaching of John Calvin has disastrous implications when carefully observed. In effect, Mr. Calvin is telling us the following points. He is telling us this. Point number one, Jesus wasn't originally righteousness before he was incarnated. That's what he's telling us, that Jesus wasn't originally righteousness before he was incarnated. So then what was he? That is saying that Jesus was a created God because he only became righteousness when he was what? Incarnated. That's watchtowerism. But wait a minute. But didn't John Calvin start the Pentecostal church? The, um, the Presbyterian church? Yes. And what, didn't the watchtower come from the Presbyterian church? Yes. Oops. Did you see that? Again, what is he telling us? B. He is telling us, it implies this, that we are not saved by the indwelling of divinity, but by Jesus' historical obedience. So this is what we are being told. We are not saved by the indwelling of divinity, but by Jesus' historical obedience. That's what we are being told. C, we are not saved by the righteousness of God. We are saved by Jesus' humanity. That's what he's telling us. D, it is not... Jesus' divinity that saves man because it is the righteousness of it is not Jesus' divinity that saves man because it is the righteousness of God it is Jesus' humanity because it died to justify us 
Again, it is not Jesus' divinity that saves man because it is the righteousness of God. It is Jesus' humanity because it died to justify us. This, in a nutshell, is what we are being told by John Calvin. Do you get this clear, my dear brethren? All this is heresies, and we faced it, and we dealt with it. Right? So, we propose now. What do we propose to deal with that now? Number one, it is God being God that saves sinners. Amen? That's what we propose. It is God being God that what? Saves sinners. B, it is Jesus' divinity. It is Jesus' divinity being God our righteousness that saves us. You didn't hear me. It is Jesus' divinity being God our righteousness that saves us. C, there is no salvation except the righteousness of God dwells within man. Amen? There is no salvation except the righteousness of God dwells within man. And D, the righteousness of God is eternal righteousness. You didn't hear me. The righteousness of God is eternal righteousness. These points here, when held, does away with what John Calvin tells us. So we are now going to look at certain scriptures to see some of these important points here that we just talked. Yes. Huh? Which point? Okay. Point A. We are proposing this to deal with what John Calvin taught. We are saying, point A, it is God being God that saves sinners. Get that clear? Yes. B, it is Jesus' divinity being God our righteousness that saves us. C, there is no salvation except the righteousness of God dwells within man. D, the righteousness of God is eternal righteousness. Got that clear? Now all you have to do is to hold those principles and it does away with what John Calvin taught us. Amen, brethren? Now it is the teachings of John Calvin that spread all over the world, founded the Presbyterian Church, the Congregational Church followed his, um, his concepts and a whole set of other churches, the Reformed Churches and so on. And all of them cause great destruction because they are now telling us something completely different than what the gospel says. So the first point we want to see is that Jesus is the righteousness of God with regards to his divinity. That's what we want to see. That Jesus is the righteousness of God, not with regards to his humanity, but with regards to his divinity. This is what we want to see. Amen, brethren? And where do we start? You know, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, and verse 6. That's where we start. I'm going to read it according to the Hebrew. Right? Jeremiah 23, verse 5, and verse 6. And I'm going to read it according to the Hebrew. Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6. 
and I'm going to read it according to the Hebrew. Is it found? Now, how do we know who is being spoken of here in these verses? The verses clearly show that it is prophesying of somebody to come who is born a man. But it also shows part of him is God, part of him is supposed to be divine. So while he's being born a man, he also has a divine part in him. This is what this scripture is saying. Let's look at it. Verse 5. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. Did you see that? And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice where? In the earth. So we expect somebody to be raised up, a king to be born on the earth and exercise his judgment and justice. Then we are told, in his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called Yahweh our righteousness. Did you hear that? So the prophecy here made of Jesus, we have been told that when, what Jesus is going to be called is Yahweh our righteousness. Now why call him Yahweh our righteousness if he isn't Yahweh? Why give him that name? Any name given to Jesus in the Bible, it is because he is that. Amen, brethren? That's the point. If you want to call him the branch of David, he really is a branch of David. What do you say? If you want to call him the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is the king of the tribe of Judah, he was of Judah and he was the king. Amen? What if you want to call him Emmanuel, God with us? It is because he is what? God with us. The names given to Jesus imply who he is. And if he's called Yahweh, our one, Righteousness is because he is what? Yahweh, our righteousness. Amen? But let's say, okay, we know he is righteousness. But he's just being called Yahweh, our righteousness. What if somebody says that? Let's find out who Yahweh is. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, 3, and 7. Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. Two, three, and seven. Let's see who Yahweh is. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, 3, and 7. Pay attention. Watch this. We read. Is it found? And God spake unto Moses, I'm saying it in the Hebrew to her, and God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am Yahweh. Did you hear that? Yes. Who, is say, who is saying that? He is saying what? I am Yahweh. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of El Shaddai, God Almighty. But by the name but by my name, but by my name, Yahweh, was I not known to them. Did you see that? Yes. Verse 7. And I will take you to me for a people, 
and I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So we see clearly here that Yahweh is the true God. Amen, brethren? Yes. Amen? Yes. And we see his name is what? Yahweh. Did you see that, my dear brethren? Did you see that? So when this was translated in the year 1611, they believed that the name of God was Jehovah. So they put Jehovah here. But the actual Hebrew is Yahweh. So this is the reason why I say Yahweh and not Jehovah. Right? I'm just saying that's a sub we need to continue Hebrew. Right, now. So we see here, God is saying his name is Yahweh. Now you take the name Yahweh and you call Jesus Yahweh our righteousness. You don't just call him our righteousness, you call him what? Yahweh our righteousness. Now you're not saying Yahweh has righteousness there. You're saying our righteousness is whom? Yahweh. So you're actually saying the righteousness that we have is whom? Yahweh. But Yahweh is the true God. So a prophecy calls Jesus Yahweh our righteousness, but Yahweh is the true God. Amen, brethren? Let's see that Yahweh is the true God. Psalms 83, 18. Psalms 83, 18. Psalms 83, 18. Is it found? Yes. Psalms 83, 18. Again, I'm going to say it according to the Hebrew, right? Okay? Right. It goes on. That men may know that thou whose name alone, whose name alone, let me read it again. That thou, that men, that whom? Men. That's everybody on the earth. Yes. May know that thou whose name alone is Yahweh, Yahweh at what? The most high over all the earth. And that is the shocking thing. People had gods in all kinds of names. But the one that was called Yahweh alone, he was the one. The most high over what? All the earth. So we know Yahweh is the true God. But here is the next shocking thing. Turn with me to Hosea chapter 13. Hosea chapter 13 and verse 4. Hosea chapter 13 and verse 4. Is it found? Is it found? We read. Yet I am Yahweh, thy God, from the land of Egypt. 
and thou shalt know no God but me. For there is what? No savior besides me. Did you see that? So we know Jesus' name is Yahweh, our righteousness. We know Yahweh is the true God that says, that is my name. And we know he is the what? Only savior. No. Let's make another surprising uh, footstep. Titus 1, 3 and Titus 2, 13. We put them together. Titus 1, 3 and Titus 2, 13. Is it found? Titus 1, 3. Make sure your neighbor find it. Help them find it. And you must read it with your own eyes. But hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is, com which is committed unto me, according to the commandment of whom? God our Savior. Now stop there for a while. So here we see Paul is saying, the gospel to preach is committed to him by the great God, our Savior. So God, our Savior. Notice God says, Yahweh, I am Yahweh. There's no Savior but me. So the great God, our Savior, is the one who is saying right here, I give you my word to preach. Okay? One more scripture and then I'll take your hand. We'll come to that in a while. Chapter 2, verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you see that? So we are told the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This means that Jesus is God and our what? Savior. But there was only one Savior, Yahweh. And Jesus is God and our Savior. So when Jesus is called Yahweh, our righteousness, it is because he is Yahweh. Did you see that? So it's not just a name given to him. Like if you say, what is your name? Your name is David. What is your name? Your name is Solomon. Or what is your name? Your name is Elijah or Eli, which is God. Or Elijah, God is Yah. It's not like an ordinary man have that name. The name that Jesus have identify who he is. If he is called Yahweh, the only Savior, and we are told he is Yahweh, our righteousness, it means that Jesus is our righteousness because he is God. Did you see that? So the Jesus is the righteousness of God by virtue of his word. His divinity. That's the point. So when you're looking at Jesus, the important point is Jesus is God and Jesus is Yahweh, our righteousness. And Jesus is Savior. So now let's look at verse 4 of Titus 1 and verse 4. I wish you better point to 2. To Titus, my own son, after the common faith, grace and mercy and peace 
from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus, our what? Savior. So he's still Savior here. But we saw the great God and Savior. So what is this scripture? Tell, what does all these scriptures tell us here? It tells us that when he is called Jesus, and this is his name whereby he shall be called, Yahweh, our righteousness, you're calling him that because he is Yahweh, God, and therefore is what? Our righteousness. One more scripture. Daniel 9, 7. Daniel 9, 7. So watch this. Daniel 9, 7. Just the first part of this verse. That's the first part of this verse. Is it found? Daniel chapter 9 and verse 7. You must read this with your own eyes. You must read it in your own Bible. Verse 7. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee. Did you see that? So righteousness belongs to whom? God himself, Yahweh. So when we are told Jesus is called Yahweh, what? Our righteousness is because he is God, the only Savior, and he is Yahweh, and righteousness belongs to him. Is that understood? So Jesus didn't become our righteousness when he was incarnated. Jesus is Yahweh, our righteousness. Because Jesus is God. Did you see that? And if your religion is not founded on that, pray tell me, what salvation you're looking to preach? Because I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the science of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. For therein is what? The righteousness of God revealed. As it is written what? The just shall live by faith. If you want to live by faith, it is true the righteousness of God. Amen, brethren? And that righteousness of God is God himself. And that is Jesus. So when Jesus is called Yahweh, our righteousness, it is simply because Jesus is God and the righteousness that he is identified with belongs to him. Is that understood, my dear brethren? If you make a mistake with that, all your doctrine wrong. You didn't hear me. If you make a mistake with that, all your doctrines are wrong. You must start off there. And that is why young men and women here, when you go to preach to people, it will do you good if you always talk to people about the righteousness of God. And if you show how it works to make you live by faith, you go in and talk to Gentiles who don't know the way, and you want to show them the signs of salvation. You must be able to incorporate into your words Yahweh as our what? Righteousness or the righteousness of God making a person able to live by faith. If you can provide a connection in that teaching, you have the gospel. If you can show the righteousness of God, and how it causes you to live by faith and you have the connections from the scripture in between here, you have the everlasting gospel. And that's what you must learn to do. So, you're preparing a study, trying out on your own, 
Prepare and study with materials like that. Prepare and study with teachings like that. Is that understood, my dear brethren? That's what you should do. Yes, brother. My name. I am honored when my name comes up in such topics. What do you say? When it come up good or bad, I'm honored. It means the association is there. What do you say? You just talk about the Bible, my name come up. I feel good about that. Conversation finishes. Amen. See that? And that is true. If you ask um, Lao Dissan, what is right? All the quick they say, right doing. So, Yahweh, all right doing. <laughs> That's right. Right? Beautiful. Okay. Watch this now. As the righteousness of God, watch me, as the righteousness of God, Jesus is the eternal God. Listen to me carefully. As the righteousness of God, Jesus is the eternal God. This is what we are looking at, right? So as you right, so in other words, you don't look at the body of Jesus and say, due to his body, he's the eternal God. 
If you look at Jesus and say, due to his body, he's eternal God, then how his body died? But in him, the divine nature dwells. So we can say, as the righteousness of God, Jesus is the eternal God. Back to Romans chapter 10, we read verse 4, and then we read verse 3, and then we read verse 4 again. We follow that pattern. Romans chapter 10, we read verse 4, then we read verse 3, and then we go back to verse 4. Right? Yes, no problem. Yeah. And then after that, we look at Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. So Romans chapter 10, we read verse 4, verse 3, and then verse 4 to get the right effect. Verse 4. For Christ is the aim of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. So the aim of the law was to point to Christ. For us to get righteousness, we who believe. Okay? Now go to verse 3. For they, the Jews, being ignorant of God's righteousness. Did you see that? And going about to establish what? Their own righteousness have not what? Submitted themselves unto what? The righteousness of God. For Christ is the aim of the law for righteousness to everyone that believe it. So what does this show us? It shows us, number one, that the righteousness of God is what, the, is, is what we get when we go to Christ. That the law points to Christ for righteousness. What is that righteousness? The righteousness of God. So when you say Jesus has righteousness, what righteousness do you mean? The righteousness of God. You could mean the good works of the law. Because he had that. But that is not what the Bible is talking about here. You see? So the aim of the law is to point to Christ for what? Righteousness. What righteousness? The righteousness of God. That is Jesus Christ, right? So then Jesus is the what? Righteousness of God. Now let's see what the Bible tells about Jesus. Micah chapter 5. Yes, brother. Righteousness and the righteousness of God. There is absolutely no difference. That's why I quoted here. Oh, righteousness and right doing. Right, right doing is also righteousness. But when you say righteousness that is different to right doing, that's the nature of God. So if you do right, that is righteousness as right doing. The righteousness of the law. But then there is a righteousness of God that is different to the law. That's the nature of God. Right? Beautiful. Now, Micah chapter 5. Is it found? Verse 2. But thou Bethlehem. Now, there's a reason why I chose this. Because this is speaking about the incarnation. What is it speaking about? Chapter 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, meaning the littlest town, among the thousands of towns in Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me 
that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old and from everlasting. Did you see that? So the idea we are being given here is the one who is born in Bethlehem is the one who existed all through eternity. Did you see that? Did you see that? So when Jesus was born, that was the person that existed through all through eternity. In his physical form? No. His divinity. And notice we have read before that Jesus is called the righteousness of God. So the righteousness of God, which is God himself, is the one who existed from all through what? Eternity. Now what does this show us then? These scriptures therefore show us that as the righteousness of God, Jesus is the eternal God. Amen. Did you get that clear? As the righteousness of God, Jesus is the what? Eternal God. What else does this mean? It means that Jesus is Savior because Jesus is God who is our righteousness. So if you come and say Jesus is the Savior, what do you mean? Here you see the man walking upon the face of the earth years ago. And he said, Jesus is your Savior. What are you saying? When you're saying Jesus is the Savior, you are saying this. You are saying that Jesus is our Savior because Jesus is God who is our righteousness. Are you listening to me? Yes. So, so, so imagine, Muhammad is your Savior, Buddha is your Savior, Jesus is your Savior. Why do you say Jesus is your Savior? I say Jesus is our Savior because Jesus is God who is our righteousness. They can't say that about Muhammad. They can't say that about Buddha. But they can say that about who? Jesus. You see the difference? You see the difference? You need to recognize these things. You need so when you're going and preach Jesus, it's not like somebody saying, Well, Muhammad bring this, or Muhammad do this, or Buddha do this, or Buddha or Krishna do this, and so on. You're saying things that are legitimized in the Bible. Now let's just look at this one here now. Did I see somebody hand? Okay, we go to Isaiah. Yeah, this is the same point we are looking at in Isaiah. 43. Verse 11. Isaiah 43, verse 11. And guess what? Second Peter one one. Second Peter one one. We put those two scriptures together. The word Buddha. It just means enlightened one. That's all it means. Enlightened one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I always laugh when people say Buddha the enlightened one. Now imagine you and I. Do you eat pork? No. Why don't you do it? It's not good for your health. The enlightened one died when he ate pork and get the century. <laughs> imagine that. You know more than Buddha. 
because you don't, don't eat pork. Buddha ate pork. Listen, you're, you're on the earth so long, 83 years old. An 83-year-old man supposed to have experience by then, over the years. But you eat pork, you get the century, and you die. And he was enlightened over the years. If I don't love Christianity, I am crazy. <laughs> Amen? The very nature of our religion is saying Babylon is fallen, Christ is the answer. You get that? The very nature of our religion is saying what? Babylon is fallen, Christ is the answer. <laughs> okay, we read 43.11. Listen to this. I... Even I am Yahweh. And besides me, there is what? No Savior. Did you see that? I. Even I am Yahweh. And besides me, there is what? No Savior. So equation. Yahweh, Savior. Do you know that's where the word Jesus come from? Do you know that's where the word Jesus came from? The actual word Jesus, which is Yahshua, Yah from Yahweh and Shua from Savior, you just take it to and put it again, Yahshua, which is Jesus. <laughs> That's the source of the name Jesus. That scripture you just read here. That's the reason why you have to see he's God. What do you say? You see? I, even I am Yahweh. And beside me there is what? No Savior. Now look at 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Compare. 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Help your neighbor find it if they know not where. 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Woo! You must love this scripture when you read this one now. Eh? I'm sure when you read this scripture, you must love this scripture much more with what you're seeing in it. Eh? I do. Even much more. Let's look at it. We read. Remember what we are showing here, right, brethren? That Jesus is Savior because Jesus is God who is our righteousness. We see Yahweh is the only Savior. Now let's look at Second Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us, Show the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you see it? So, Jesus, we are told that Jesus Christ is God and what? Our Savior. And we get the salvation from what? The righteousness of Jesus, who is God. And he says, I am Yahweh. And beside me, there is no Savior. So this Jesus here is the same Yahweh who is the Savior. Yes, brother. Yes. Uh, let me see if I can see that. Through the righteousness of God and our Savior, it should be through the righteousness of God and of our... Let me see. Through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
I can't see any other way in the English, but it is the same in the Greek. So it is not, it, it is acknowledged here, that it's not speaking about two persons, it is speaking about one, God who is identified as Jesus. Exactly. And I'm beside that. You just read Titus, the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the same pattern. In the Greek. Same pattern. Right. So, but apart from all of that, what do we see here? Right? And not just only that, we know Christ is God. And we know he's called Yahweh what? Our righteousness. So we are saved by the righteousness of the great God and our Savior, whom? Jesus Christ. So Yes, they can say all of that. But when it comes theologically, then you'll have to ask, if, if it is God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and God is different to the Savior, how could God say he is the only Savior and there's none else? And that's why I put those two scriptures together to also reinforce that thought. That Yahweh saying he is Savior and there's none else. There's no Savior beside him. I, even I am Yahweh, and beside me there's what? No Savior. So the Savior here in Peter will have to be whom? The same Yahweh. Now you see it. The great God, you know, we are saved by the righteousness of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what does this show us here? And I'll take your hand. What does this show us here? This scripture we just read shows us that Jesus is our Savior because Jesus is God who is our righteousness. Amen? Amen? Now, when, when John Calvin, if he had gotten to study the scriptures like this, like how we are doing it, he might have been different. Amen? But when you follow scholars who write a lot of nonsense and you try to take the scripture and force it to fit into the mold, you come up with all kinds of foolishness, including the idea that we are saved by the humanity of Jesus and not by his divinity. Jesus is Savior because Jesus is God. And we are saved by God. But God is the righteousness of God. And you cannot be saved without any righteousness of God, which is Jesus Christ. So one hand and then two. Yes. And, and you, um, and you want to say, uh, that's a conjunction, so can we two different people? It will have to introduce another word to show it's two different people. Right. But we use scripture instead of grammar. We use scripture to show it's the same. Right? Exactly. Beautiful. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Now, let's go. Yes, my dear. Say that again. Sorry. When we. The sister asks, when we receive the divine nature, when we are converted or justified, what do we receive? The righteousness of God or the faith of Jesus Christ? I'll answer you by just quoting the scripture. Romans chapter 4.
verse 5. Verse 5. Is it found? Is it found? But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justified the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So here's the idea. Here's the idea, sister. This, this here, is faith. The faith of Jesus Christ. Okay? Inside here is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God comes in the faith of Jesus Christ. If you are to get the righteousness of God, you must get the word. Faith of Jesus Christ. This is why it is called righteousness by faith. Right? Or be found in him, having not my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Jesus Christ. The righteousness which is of God by faith. So in other words, you get the righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ. God in, imputes faith unto you for you to get righteousness. Because it is the righteousness of God that saves. No, it is not the same. Put it this way. The faith of Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God explained. That's the reason why we are told that Jesus Christ is the explanation or exegesis of God. Is that understood? The Bible didn't say... Uh, let, 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 me, let me quote like John Calvin. Let me try and make ridicule John Calvin's um, statement. Man was Christ reconciling the world unto himself. What did the Bible say? God was in Christ. What? Reconciling the world. We are saved by the divinity of Jesus, not his humanity. So that is why you can't say man was Christ reconciling the world unto himself. But what? God was in Christ Jesus. Do you get that clear, my dear brethren? Brethren, are you understanding what we are talking about thus far? We'll make people. That's why we know today the greatest blasphemers of Christianity came from the Presbyterian Church. Ooh, you didn't know that one too, eh? The greatest blasphemers of Christianity came from the Presbyterian Church. That's why that is so in history. With that kind of teaching, and who teaching hellfire more than the Presbyterian? You're burning forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Seven years of wrong, and next man do 70 years of wrong, and both burning, you say, forever. It's all of that. And by the way, Charles says Russell as a Presbyterian who founded the Watchtower organization. He said one of the teachings he found bad was the idea that you have ever burning hell. That's why Watchtower said they teach there is no hell. See? The Presbyterians are followers of John Calvin. Literally.
Yes. Amen. Now here is our next shocking point. Yes. Sorry. Yes, in his, yes, as he should this morning. All right, let me give you a little more detailed history. John Knox was from Scotland. John Knox was a Calvinist, following John Calvin and all his writings. John Knox attacked the Roman Catholic Church and identified the Roman Catholic Church teaching salvation by works. He said salvation was by Jesus Christ. Mary, queens of Scots, met him face to face and threatened to kill him. And he said he would follow and do the truth. And he ain't following no church. So he decided he's going to start a church that is going to teach these same principles that you're saved through Christ and not, you don't have to follow the Pope. The name of the religion he, 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 he gave because he was a Calvinist following the teachings of John Calvin was the Presbyterian Church. A church run by presbyters. It's like saying a church run by elders. There is a Presbyterian church, you're saying elders church. That's what you're saying. You understand? So that's where it came. And from there it spread all over the world. Those in Geneva were following the same John Calvin. And they say since we reformed from the Catholic Church, we're gonna call ourselves the Reformed Church. So then they start calling themselves the Reformed Church, but it was the same Calvinist church. It's like John Wesley. John Wesley taught a method of sanctification. They call him Methodist. But other people were following the same teachings of Wesley and called him the Wesley Church, Wesleyan Church. And then others following the same, they call him the Wesleyan Holiness Church. And others say a Wesleyan is a pilgrim, so they call him the Pilgrim Holiness Church. So they all, those, all those churches were very Wesleyan churches. Amen, brethren? Where the Anglican Church came from. When Henry VIII wanted another wife, and he knew that he was married, and he needed another wife, he wanted to find an excuse to divorce his wife and marry another. The Catholic Church was the church in England, and the Catholic Church said, no, no divorce for you. You have to marry this woman. So he, the woman couldn't be a manager, so he was angry. So one of his top advisors advised him, break away from the Catholic Church, and you become the protector of the English Church, and uh, of the English Catholic Church, and just call yourself English Church. The word Anglican means English. So Anglican Church is really what? English Church. Of course, everybody's offshoot. <laughs> yeah, just as though the Catholic Church is a direct offshoot from the true church. It is true, it is true. Listen. Christ shall not come except there come a word, a falling away. The actual translation is apostasy and the man of sin revealed. So in other words, the Catholic Church is an offshoot from the what? The true church, but an apostate offshoot. Right? That's why I tell you, everybody is offshoot. <laughs> yes. 
MD Pentecostals today have doctrines like a Calvinist. You have to understand the Pentecostal church. That one started bad. A church does usually start from a doctrine. Amen? The Anakin church started to gratify a Henry VIII loss. So they were started through adultery. The Methodist church was started as a method of salvation. The pilgrim holiness believe that our Wesleyan is a pilgrim and they believe in holiness. The Wesleyan holiness believe Wesley teach the principles of holiness according to Wesleyan holiness. But what did the Pentecostal church come? What did they come by? They believed that they're supposed to receive Pentecost of the Spirit. And they started speaking in tongues, which today we know is not tongues. And the man who originally started it had a disciple called William Seymour, who moved to Texas and then moved to uh, San Francisco, moved to California, and who in Azusa Street had meetings. In the Azusa Street meetings, there were spiritists that believe you could conjure up spirits by seances, plus those who believe you could speak in tongues mixed together. The two united together to create the Pentecostal Church. So the Pentecostal Church is a mixture of teaching spiritualism and tongue speaking. That's where it came from. But since it started there, the Pentecostal Church didn't start with any particular science of justification and so on. So where did it get all its teachings about that from? From John Nelson Darby, who was the brethren. Where did it get a teaching on the Antichrist and, and the 666 and the rapture from? From John Nelson Darby. So the whole teaching from John Nelson Darby really came as a result from a mixture of Anglican and Presbyterian. So when you have John Nelson Darby, one save, always save, that is Presbyterian. Amen? But that anybody who accepts could be saved, that is Wesley. So you have the, uh, you have the brethren starting with Pre um, Presbyterian, Anglican, and Methodist. Put them together, create their own thing. And then you have the Pentecostal movement starting with speaking tongues, spiritism, country of spirits. And then you take all of it, put it here. That's the Pentecostal church. That's not how you are born from God. What do you say? That's how they are born. So that's where they come from. So, the, so that is why we always tell you, the Pentecostal church is Christian spiritualism. It is, it is watch me, listen to me. It is spiritualism in a Christian form. They get that clear. They could talk about Christ. They could talk about what they wanted to. It is spiritualism with a Christian faith. It's not Christianity with false doctrines. It is spiritualism wearing Christian robes. That's why the religion reaches its heights when it got manifestation of the spirit. And you know how they do it. They fall down. And I, I, I was there. I see it. I was there. I see it. I stood up. And right where Sister Julia is sitting, there's a girl right in front of me. And when the pastor waved his hand so, everybody start. The poor girl, she was, this is the bench here, this is the wall here. So you pass there, and she stand up there, and as she started to beat up, poops, head on the wall. 
fall down on the ground, clothes up, underwear showing. People run on the white clothes and they cover you down. <laughs> I don't know how God just manifests himself that way. But that is not of God, amen? And I was right here. I am here and the girl is like, where is this related? So I see everything. That's just one I could give you. Let me give you a curious one. You know, there are many, many experiences. I used to live in love until bad of the bad, bad place. There was this young girl. We all knew her in the area. Every guy in the area get her. You know what that means. You know, there's some girls like that. Every fellow in the area could give her a story of what they did to her. But she's a girl, her tongue boy. That girl could curse. God, she could curse. I talk, you talk about every two or three words, mother this and the F word and so on. And any little thing she gets, and she always gets it on. When crusade come in the area, Pentecostal crusade, they speak in tongues. Who speak in tongues more than she? <laughs> well, I tell you, it's all right. This girl, listen, in the whole church, I tell you, I was there. That's the early days, right? Early days, right? Listen, I was there. Watch me. All the other people finished, she's still continuing. 15 minutes after the people finish, she's still continuing. You understand? That is speaking in tongues. So the Holy Spirit manifests itself with the most corrupt. But watch this. So service finish. We living in the same area, so I can either go this way, go this way, and go this way to go home. Or I can either go this way, go this way, and go down to go home. But I choose this one on top. Because I had a friend living in a track. And we used to talk a little Bible thing and so on. You know, in those days, you know, you're now growing, you're now getting to do. So as I reached, and I'm in by him, and we're talking, the neighbor next door talked to somebody who was the same girl we didn't know. But when we hear the voice, we know it was the same girl. And boy, if you hear cuss out. So it's just after the meeting, I am watching her with a big cuss out with the neighbor. And in those days, when you cuss out, you just raise up your clothes too. Those girls, you know how they used to do it. So we saw everything. So I'm just trying to show you. She speaks in tongues more than anybody else. I could give you stories after stories after stories. They try to bring me in their nonsense. But not knowing much, I just watch and I make sure I didn't go into it until I found out. But thank God I found out it was bad. Amen, brethren? That's how it is. I'm just trying to show you. That's where the religion started. Now let's get back to basics now, quickly. Right? Let's get back to basis quickly. I need to show you this important point here. You find Ephesians 2.12. Ephesians 2.12 and 2 Corinthians 13.5. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Ephesians 2.12. 2 Corinthians 13. Five. Is it from? Yes, Second Corinthians thirteen five. Now, I'm not telling you what I'm going to speak about yet. You're going to read it and you're going to see for yourself, right? Yes. Ephesians two twelve. Is it from? But at that time, you were what? So is he speaking about unconverted people? Ungodly people. But they are unconverted. 
that at that time you were what? With what? Without Christ. Being what? From the commonwealth or citizenship of Israel. And what? Strangers from the covenant of promise. Now here comes the part. Having what? And what? Without God in the world. Now wait a minute. Hold on. What does that phrase mean? You are in the world and you are without God. Watch me. You are in the world and you are without God. Does it mean you don't talk about him? Does it mean you don't have a Bible? Or does it mean God doesn't dwell in you? That's right. You don't talk about him. Or it don't mean much to you. You may have a Bible, but it don't mean much to you. You may have a Bible and read it. But once you don't have God dwelling where? In you, you are without God in the world. Do you see what's the problem with sin sinful people? Yes. Lost people do not have God dwelling where? Yes. Do you get that clear? Yes. Now let's put that with Corinthians now. 2 Corinthians 13.5 2 Corinthians 13.5 Found it? Watch your shocking statement now. Examine yourselves. Did you see that? Whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves that Jesus Christ is in you except you be good so it shows us the problem of being sinners lost if God doesn't dwell in you Jesus Christ doesn't dwell in you if God is not in you if Christ is not in you you're lost amen brethren so it means to say the answer to that godlessness. That's what godless means, you know. When he says person is godless, he means they are without God. You Christless person, they don't have Christ. So if God doesn't dwell in you, if Christ doesn't dwell in you, you're lost. That's it. Did you see that? So that shows us what is the solution. The solution means... That the salvation that Jesus came to give is to have us being partakers of the divine nature. The salvation is to have God dwell where? In us. Is that understood? So he must find a way to get the righteousness of God, which is what? God himself to dwell where? In us. Let's see this and I'll take your hand. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 4. Yes. It means disapproved, unapproved. You're unapproved of God if you don't have God in you. That's the actual translation. Now we go. 2 Peter. And listen, you need to read how the verses connect themselves. Right? From verse 1 to verse 4. You need to read how it connects, how they are connected together. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 4. Let's read. All are being connected now, right? All are being connected now. Remember what we just read in verse 1? All are being connected until we reach verse 4. Let's read. 
Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you. See what he's telling us? Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. There's the whole idea that the knowledge of God is brought to you by the knowledge of Jesus. You see? He goes on. Verse 3. According as his divine power, right, had given unto us all things that pertain unto life, that is spiritual life, and what? Godliness. So God give us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Okay? Yes, dunamis. Yes, and when you say divine power, the real word is God's power. God power. That's right. It goes on. Verse 3. According as his divine power had given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, that is Jesus, and had called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of what? The divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through what? Lust. Did you see that? So the clear idea is that we are called to gain salvation from the righteousness of a God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We get that salvation in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. And all those promises, which is the same knowledge of God and Jesus Christ, is given to us that we might be partakers of the world, divine nature as we escape the sinfulness of the world. So the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, which Jesus himself is, is supposed to make us become partakers of what? The divine nature and thus escape the what? Corruption that is in the world through love. So what does this mean? It means this, that when you are without God and without Christ, you're lost. The aim of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ is to cause us to be partakers of the what? The divine nature. But what does it mean to be partakers of the divine nature? Does it mean pieces of the divine nature just come off in us or something so? Let's go to the epistle of John. First John. We read Romans 3.22, First John 4.12. Romans 3.22, First John 4.12. found? We read. 
even the righteousness of God, which is true faith of Jesus Christ, into all and upon all them that believe, for there is what? No difference. So what goes into us? The righteousness of God. Okay, brethren? Now remember, we saw the righteousness of God is God what? Himself. So how does God dwell in us? 1 John chapter 4 and verse 12. And then we'll go to verse 13. Verse 12 and then verse 13. Is it found? No man had seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth where? And his love is what? Perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and and he in us because what? He has given to us of his spirit. Did you see that? And that's how the divine nature or the righteousness of God comes to dwell in us. The righteousness of God comes to dwell in us by the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you receive the Holy Spirit, you receive the divine nature or the righteousness of God dwelling in you. Now watch me. Look at Paul. Watch at Paul. You're supposed to have, to be carnally minded is? To be spiritually minded is? Life and peace. Hear him. The spirit is life. Amen? So to have the spiritual mind, you must have the Holy Spirit, which is what? Life. And then he continues, because of righteousness. Did you see that? So the spirit is life because of what? Righteousness. So if you have life, what do you have? Righteousness. Have it by the Holy Spirit, which is the righteousness of God, which is God dwelling here in you. Do you see that? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful, my dear brethren? Of course it is beautiful. But it is the way of salvation. And listen to me. Anybody who wants to teach justification, justification must give faith unto you for the righteousness of God. But the righteousness of God must be in you. Amen? That's why David said, I have not hid the righteousness of God where? In my heart. Amen, brethren? I have declared thy salvation to the great congregation. So the righteousness of God dwells in our heart as the divine nature dwelling in us. Is that understood? That's the science of salvation. That's why these points are important. We are saved by the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is what? That's right. Jesus is the righteousness of God by virtue of his what? Divinity. Jesus is the Savior. Why? Because God who is Savior is the righteousness of God in the man, Jesus. Beautiful? And finally, justification makes us really righteous by giving what? The righteousness of God within us. That's the Bible. That's the essence of salvation. And if you want to be making sure you're preaching the gospel, if you want to be in a safe position, you want to be safe in the exegesis, follow the pattern. Follow that. That's the way. Once you follow that, you're in a safe pattern. It's what salvation is all about. Now, finally, before we close off, you ask, brother, bring that into practical life. We live in a practical life every day. How can we put it practical? The righteousness of God is God himself. Okay? 
God dwells in the heart as the ideal, okay? Unless you don't want him to, he ain't going to be there. So some temptation comes to you. You know to do the temptation, you have to deny what God says he is. Amen? You know to do the temptation, you have to deny God as the ideal in you. So as the temptation comes, you look at it with the faith of Jesus Christ, you reveal truth. The revealed truth shows you the wrong of it. It shows you why it is worthless and there's nothing good about it. But that same revealed truth doesn't only convince you of sin, but of righteousness. So it shows you God and what he is. And why you have something more valuable than what is being offered to you, the righteousness of God. Because remember Paul says he comes everything dog filled. That he may gain the righteousness of God. As you read this morning. So what then do you do? You just simply say no to the wrong. Amen? And you say yes to the truth. Amen, brethren? And as a result of that, you're free. You're sinless. You're away from the wrong. What is in you is the righteousness of God that shows you the wrong. Now let me just say one more thing. If I were to put it, you know I was studying. I asked myself, what kind of church is the Catholic church? Coming from the time of the days of the religion of Osiris and so on, the Catholic church is a mystical church. You know, like for instance, you have um, some of these fellows that teach African philosophy and they teach Osiris with this and all kind of mysticism. That's the Catholic church, a mystical church. What kind is the Watchtower church? Skepticism, doubt, and human speculation. Each have their characteristic image. What kind is the Pentecostal? Emotional, erratic, less thinking. Each have their way. Okay? Now here is the point. The point we are saying in all of this is this. If you want to be sound in your mind, you want to be sound in your religion, you want to make sure you have the truth. These truths here are the best way to secure yourself. People, come up with all kind of theory about the righteousness of God. Let me read one theory for you. And, and when I read it, I want you to ask if that could make sense to you. But you have big men saying stupidness like this. Watch. I took up a book home by Verlin Verbrugge, New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology. One of the top rave books today. And he's attempting to tell us what is the righteousness of God. Would you know what he says? I read. God's righteousness is essentially his covenant dealings with his people. Does it make sense to you? God's righteousness is essentially his covenant dealings with his people who are thereby constituted a new humanity, a new Israel, comprising both of Jews and Gentiles. This divine righteousness is revealed by the fact that God pur God's purposes are not foiled by human sin. Rather, God remains almighty as both Lord and Savior in spite of huma human rebellion. A nice, beautiful statement. As you go along, you will say, oh yeah, God's purposes always get through, you know? God still, and you know, by the time you say that, you're off the track a long time. God's righteousness is his covenant dealing with his people. 
but to share the covenant dealing changes the people make them a new creation a new Israel well that would mean to say his covenant dealing means his ability to create amen because he makes it a new creature right a new creation here right so if it's his ability to create it says he remains almighty as both Lord and Savior so immediately I'm getting an idea his ability to create means his Godship that's why he's still Lord that's why he's still what Savior so in so many words you want to tell us the righteousness of God is God's greatness or God's dynamic ability you say it's covenant relationship with his people and you end up showing it is his ability to recreate the people his Godship his saviorship you could have simply said the righteousness of God is the divine nature of God would anybody have understood that of course why all this long talk to some intellectual but it's a lot of stupidness is that understood one more one more As I read this morning, Rogers and Rogers link the new linguistic and exegetical key to the Greek New Testament. A very thick book, page 316. He goes to Romans 1, 17 in the Greek text and he's exegeting what the righteousness of God is. All the knowledge he has in his head, he don't know. What does he tell you? Hear what he says. The phrase could mean the righteousness of God. The phrase could mean the righteous standing which God gives. Wait a minute. The righteousness of God is the righteous standing. Hear him say righteous changer. Righteous standing. Now righteous standing in evangelical terms mean you appear righteous in your stand, but you're not really righteous. That's what you call any righteousness of God. But he's saying this because some are saying this. So he says, the phrase could mean the righteous standing which God's give, God gives or the righteous character which God is. Come on. Yes. Or the righteous character which God is. What did he say? Yes. That's the word. Or the righteous activity which comes from God. Did you see that? Now the middle one is the true understanding, but this shows you the great brain with all the scholarly availability of material to exegete the Greek. His book is not even English, eh? It's the Greek text he's exegeting with a few little English notes. And he don't know what is the righteousness of God. Brethren, would you not rather trust your Bible? Yes. Didn't your Bible present it simple to you? But wasn't it even wonderful to be able to see scripture unfold before your eyes? Of course it was. That's where we stand, okay? Okay, brethren. Now, that's why I could end by holding my Bible and saying, What do we say? Come on. Don't, don't like some people on the street. What did we say? Here I stand. I can do what? No other. And God has helped us. Amen? Amen, brethren? Lovely. Right? So we just have some announcements to make. Right? Uh, the brother have an announcement here to make, right? To show us, right? Okay? Let's just say our the word of prayer, and then we have the announcement, and also we have something from Pakistan, the latest information, right? Okay? Let's stand.
Let's pray. Thank you, loving Father, for the truth that you have shown us. Thank you for the revelations you have given to us. May we humble ourselves to these truths, to serve you in spirit and in truth, exalting you to be loved as you are. We thank you again for all these wonderful revelations. We are nothing, but you are all things. And we thank you again for all this understanding. Let us each study these things for ourselves, learn these things for ourselves, take down these points, loving Father, and make sure we have these as the standards. As we go on our way, please keep us safe from all harms, trouble, dangers, and accidents, and help us to reach our destination safe from all the rain and flood that is coming. In Jesus' holy name we pray. We thank you and Amen. Amen. Now, please sit quickly, sit quickly for these announcements, right? Okay? Quickly, brother, what is the brethren in Pakistan say? Quickly. Shortly. Amen. Did you see that? Amen. Beautiful, lovely, right? Amen. You have great work to do. I'm great to see that. Brother, you have something to show us? Quickly? Yes. Yes. Pretend you're in a maxi. You're not the road, right? And you see somebody within the Bible like Brother Medina had seen. And they want to get a message across to them. Tell them maybe about the radio program on a Sunday morning. Tell them about some time of salvation in a short week. But you live a river, you're in Fort of Spain, you're going to Saudi, you can't get across another time. So you have a little card, these little call cards, right, for the radio program. A brother in the church did a track at the back of it. So there's something simple that you can personalize your name on it. So that the person will try to call Brother Medina because they don't know him. They know you. They met you. So simply, you just take some Bible scripture to, let's say, in the case of this one, telling you about faith, and you put that together, so on a call card. What I'm asking is for brethren, some people have a better feel for justification, some have a better one for righteousness, some have one for sinlessness. Some have one talking about the apostasy of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Laodicea, things like that. But it's something that you feel comfortable with. So in presenting the Escape for Thy Life idea, and in presenting some truth, you can leave this call card with the person. It's simple, it's easy, it's nothing long-winded, because we don't have a lot of time to gather the flock. Let's put it that way. So what I'm asking is for anybody who's interested getting a little time like this. Some brethren say they like it. Just uh, email me or write it down and we will work together on making a little call card for you personally personally to present in your comments and going because we have the tracks. But to sit with somebody to present a track is not always convenient. 
And then somebody might have this card and then the 